Good to go. All right, um, let's go to Habakkuk, not Habakkuk. All right, when I, when I first got saved, I pronounced it Habakkuk. And if you want to pronounce it Habakkuk, you can. I don't know. Habakkuk. I, for, for, for months, I was like, the book of Habakkuk. And everybody looked at me funny, but uh, Habakkuk. The two Ks, give it away. All right. Um, if you're looking at your paper, we're good, Stephen? Uh, three chapters. 56 verses, 1,475 words. Uh, Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah. And uh, so he's a contemporary of Jeremiah at home in Judah. And at the same time, he's also a contemporary of Daniel. But Daniel's off in captivity. So if you're trying to put this and like locate this, some say he might have been a contemporary with Zephaniah also, but looks definitely Jeremiah. Uh, his name means to embrace or to cling. And we'll talk about the, why that's significant later. Uh, Hab- I was going to say Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.1 says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. We don't know a lot about this man. We know he was a prophet with a burden from God to declare. That's really the mark of a prophet, right? God gives you, if you're going to minister, God gives you a burden. And here he gave him a burden to preach something. Uh, And if you go to the last verse, you have a speculation about him. Uh, The last sentence of the last verse says, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So it looks like Habakkuk, and this is speculation, but he may have also been uh, one of the Levitical choristers in the temple. Because it seems like he was part of the, the worship and the singing, and he says things that you might even see in the book of Psalms about to the st- chief musicians, etc., to the chief singer. So there's a, there's a lot of speculation that maybe he was also part of like the Levitical uh, worship leaders and worship singers, I should say, in the temple. But beyond those two things, we know he was a prophet, and we, uh, we speculate that he might have been a, a, a chorister in the temple. But beyond that, Nothing's really known about him. Nothing is known about him. Nothing is revealed about him. And even the book itself, Habakkuk is one of six undated books in the Minor Prophets, meaning that there's no specific king mentioned and there's no specific events mentioned that help you date the book. And uh, I could look up the list of the other ones, but Habakkuk is one of them. Um, a lot of people, including Schofield, who's a pretty good, you know, Bible student, they place the book near the end of Josiah's reign. Josiah was the last good king in the southern kingdom of Judah. So a lot of people put Habakkuk over there. Some put him a little earlier, some a little later, but that's a good spot to put him. Uh, We know he's near the end of the kingdom of Judah and the reign in the kingdom of Judah. Bishop Usher gives uh, gives the book a date of 626 B.C., uh, 626 BC, if you wanted a date. Uh, again, it's, it's speculative, but it's a good date to help you see where we're at. If you look at chapter 1 and look at verse 5 and 6, you see the Lord speaking here. And, and God speaks and says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder um, marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though he told, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So God is telling Habakkuk, and this is like the, this is the backdrop of the whole book. You've got to get this in your mind. God is telling Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up these Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians, to come in and destroy the nation of Judah and carry them into captivity. And Habakkuk sees that. He sees this coming punishment. He's given this burden or this warning of this coming punishment. And verse 6, historically, that is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar, right? So we get our bearings. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, uh, you know, he comes in in those three waves to kind of ransack the nation of Judah, ultimately burning them up uh, under Jeremiah's preaching, the book of Lamentations describes it, but doctrinally, 
Doctrinally, that is a picture of the Antichrist before the second coming of Christ. He's going to come through and he's going to come in and he's going to tear some things up. Now, if you look at verse number three, this is what, now, I'm saying all that because the Chaldeans were wicked, right? They weren't a righteous people. The Babylonians were wicked. They were pagan, idolatrous, wicked people, right? And they're going to be sent like a hammer to punish the nation of Judah for their idolatry and their sin. You get in the picture now? So this is the, the, the question that really undergirds what Habakkuk is processing. It's a great book, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you're going to see, is a real book. I know the pages are probably stuck together on Habakkuk, but you're going to see this guy lived where we lived, thought like we thought, and questioned like we question God. Because in verse number three, look what he asks. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? The key word of the book is why. That's what's going on here. Habakkuk was perplexed that God was going to use a wicked nation to punish his own people. And and come on, guys. Don't you ever wonder why things go the way they do? It's exactly what, I'm telling you, it's going to be a blessing, this book, because it was a blessing to me. I know it's going to be a blessing to you. Not just I'm talking about it and I'm saying that, but we all ask that question, why? We don't admit it because we want to seem holy and, oh, I trust God. Yeah, but when the door shuts and you go home at night, you wonder why. And I don't think God clobbers you over the head for wondering why. He gave you a faculty to reason. He said, come now and let us reason together. We don't question God uh, irreverently, but it's natural to think why. And Habakkuk doesn't get slapped here for asking why, but he's wondering why. And and we're going to talk about that. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Here's the key verse of the book. Behold his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Uh, we're going to talk about this. This is the only, you know the word faith only pops up two times in the Old Testament. The first one is bad, where it's a bad connotation because he's talking about the nation of Israel being children in whom is no faith. And here is a good use of the word. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, the key message is living by faith or live by faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as the God of our salvation, right? Our rescue, our deliverer, etc. So let's talk about the breakdown, because it's going to help us. I'm going to spend some time looking at the breakdown a little bit. The book is unique because two-thirds of the book, it's only three chapters, two-thirds of the book is a conversation between the prophet and his Lord. Now, what did prophets do? What was their job? Prophets spoke to men on behalf of God, right? Okay. This prophet spends two-thirds of the book speaking to God on behalf of men. And the last chapter is is a little different, but it's very interesting. So you see verses 1 to 11 is Habakkuk's first complaint. Now, if you want to add a little something to that, a little heading for chapter 1 is also watch and see. It's going to be Habakkuk's burden. It's about him watching and seeing what God is doing and wondering why. Chapter 2, or the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2, is Habakkuk's second complaint. Here's the key phrase. Stand and see. I will stand upon my watch, he says at the beginning of chapter 2. It's about Habakkuk's vision. Chapter 1, watch and see. Habakkuk's burden. Chapter 2, stand and see. Habakkuk's vision. What does God show him? And chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer. Kneel and see. This is Habakkuk's song. So let me say that again. All right? Watch and see. Stand and see. Kneel and see. Chapter 1 is the burden. Chapter 2 is the vision. Chapter 3 is the song. All right? So let's get into some Bible pictures and some important truths in the book of Habakkuk. Let's go back to chapter 1. And for this part, I really want to talk about two aspects of our good friend Habakkuk. All right? First, Habakkuk, the prophet of faith. All right? Let's talk about this. Habakkuk, the prophet of faith. 
Now, chapter 1, Habakkuk's faith is tried like your faith will be tried. The more I am growing a little bit older in the Lord, you've never arrived, you never kind of stop, you know, you're always in the Lord's gym. He's always like laying things on you. He's always testing your faith. He's always trying to grow your faith. The Bible talks about your faith growing exceedingly. The the apostles prayed and the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. That doesn't come without trying and testing. It's right. If you want to plateau in the gym, you just keep working the same weight. But if you want to grow in the gym, you've got to mix it up. You've got to confuse the muscles and you've got to add more weight onto the bar. You know, and I think Matt Maeda was talking to my son uh, about, you know, his last little bump in the road that kind of gave us all that little scare. Uh, And Matt very wisely said, this is just the Lord putting more weight on the bar. And uh, if we look at things that way, it gives a little perspective because the Lord, listen, the Lord never wants to hurt you. And the Lord never intends to destroy you. But sometimes it feels like it. Sometimes it feels like he's grinding the wheel over you and you're just like, Lord, what is going on? Check yourself. Make sure it's not sin. Ask the Lord to search you. But if you're doing the best you know how and you're doing the best you know to do and God is still putting you through the crucible, it might be, and it almost certainly is, that the Lord is just trying your faith. He's just putting a little bit of weight on to see, Will you curse God and turn from Him? Or will your faith grow? And will you stretch out in that confusion? And will you stretch out in that unknown darkness? Will you continue to reach for God even when you can't see Him? That's faith. And in chapter 1, that faith is being tested in Habakkuk. And it's being tried in Habakkuk. Look at verse 2. Look what he says to him. He saw some things and he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Here is a a man of God. He is weeping. He's crying. He's calling out to God. And he's still not seeing the change. He's still not seeing the deliverance. He's still not seeing what's this all about, God. Hey, anybody ever been there? You're praying for months or weeks or years or a long time, and Lord, where are you? That's exactly what he's saying. Lord, how long am I going to keep? He's not backsliding. It's not a lack of praying. It's just somebody in the crucible. And God is just leaving him in that silence to kind of keep stretching out to see if God is there. And he's trying his faith. Verse 3. He says, why dost thou show me this iniquity? You know what? We may not understand why. We may never understand why. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy that we do know who. He says, I know whom I have believed. And we may never know why. Job never knew why God put him through that ringer. You do, because God had mercy on us to put that in the Bible. But poor Job, he never got the explanation that you got. He just thought, I lost my kids and got them back. I lost my stuff and got it back. And God's merciful. This is great. But he didn't get the grand picture of God working something out with the devil that you get to see so you don't lose faith. But old man Job didn't lose faith. I mean, he got bumped around a little bit, but he came out good at the end. But you may never get the answer why. But you know who. And that's what's going to help you grow your faith. Uh, verse 5. Now, here's God speaking to him. He says, In the middle of the verse, I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. God is going to answer Habakkuk's prayer, and he speaks to him. That is chapter 1. Now let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 1 is that trying of Habakkuk's faith. He's wondering why. God's given him some, you know, little bit of answers, but not clear answers. Because if you go, chapter 2 is Habakkuk's faith now being tested. He's been tried, and now he's being tested. And if you see 2-1, he says... I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He didn't really get a clear answer, so what does he do? He climbs up on this watchtower to wait for God to reply. God says, I'm doing something you're not going to understand. He says, all right, I'm going to climb up on my watch and I'm going to wait and see what you're doing, God. I want this vision, God. I want to see. This is what... This verse is what uh, Maurice always puts at the end of his prayer letters. I will stand upon my watch. 
Uh, you see in verse 2, he talks about right division. So God shows him something. God gives him something here. And verse 4 is so interesting, we said. It is the only positive use of faith in the Old Testament. And it's a great picture of Old Testament salvation because it says the just or the justified, which we could use as the word saved, because, right, your salvation is not like Old Testament salvation. So when we say I'm saved, we're saying I've been washed in the blood of Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and put into the body of Christ you know, forevermore. That's salvation here. But when someone in the Old Testament said saved, most of the time it meant they were saved from their enemies or saved from something else. And you see the word just pop up a lot in the Old Testament because they could be justified and have a legal standing with God. And it says the just shall live by his faith. Because in the Old Testament, it was your faith, your faithfulness, your endurance, your continuation, your fear of the Lord that puts you in that right standing. But this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, is so important that the Apostle Paul repeats it not once, not twice, but three times in the New Testament. And we need to look at each one because each one says a little something different about faith. So let's go to Romans 1. Let's flip around a little bit so you don't doze off on me. Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 17. Here's the first mention or the first time the Holy Spirit quotes that verse. The Bible says, For, there is not, uh, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Please notice that in this use of the word, of the verse, I should say, the emphasis is on just. Because Romans is about the justification by faith. So now this is showing us he's calling back, he's reaching back to this verse, and you notice what word he left out? He left out the word his because it's not his faith that justifies him in the New Testament. It's Christ's faith that justifies us in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit wasn't remiss. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. He's showing you to be justified in this dispensation. It's not your faithfulness. It's Christ's faith that is imputed to you as a gift. The gift of righteousness by faith that God imputes to you when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. That is different than the Old Testament. From faith, Old Testament, To faith, New Testament, okay? God is showing you that there's been a change here. The Old Testament, the just shall live by his faith. The New Testament, the just shall live by faith, Christ's faith, all right? So the emphasis on this use is on the justification that happens by faith. Now go to Galatians 3. Here's the second use. And the reason why I'm looking at these is because these become a message in themselves, the three times this verse is used. Look at Galatians 3.11. Right? The Bible says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Please notice in Galatians, the emphasis is on faith. Because you know, you know what was going on in those churches in Galatia, right? I've said it before. I'll say it again. They were getting their walk all mixed up. They knew that they were getting... They knew Jesus Christ was the Savior, but they were adding works to it. They said, well, if you really want to really follow God, you need to get circumcised. You need to do this this work. You've got to keep the law, right? You've got to honor the law. And God says, it's evident that you can't be justified under the law. The just shall live by faith. Galatians is so much about faith, not just the faith that justifies you, but it's about the walk of faith. Right, That faith, Bible says in Colossians, as we have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. So Galatians is about the walk of faith. Now here's the last use of the word. Hebrews chapter 10. This making sense? All right. Hebrews 10, 38. 
Now again, Hebrews is not a Pauline epistle. It's not a church epistle. There's a very different context, which you'll see here. But in Hebrews 10.38, the Bible says, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, interesting word, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now here the emphasis is on live. The just shall live by faith. And if not, they'll be destroyed. Why is that important? Because this is a tribulation context here, people. This is a Jewish book here. This is a book for some people that are going to be going through the tribulation, looking for a kingdom. It's why it's called the book of Hebrews, not the book of the church, the book of Hebrews. And in that tribulation, guess what? If you draw back and you don't continue, and if you read the book of Revelation, the people that get to heaven, so to speak, that are saved, so to speak, are the ones that have the testimony of Jesus and something else, right? They keep the faith of Jesus and the commandments because works gets back into the equation in the tribulation once the church gets taken out of here it's like God just takes the church out we go right back to the way it was before there's an element of faith and faithfulness so if you draw back in the tribulation guess what God says my soul shall have no pleasure in them if you draw back unto perdition God says I have no pleasure in you hey the antichrist is called the son of perdition So if you're a Hebrew or a Gentile and you draw back from following God and take that mark, you go into perdition and you're destroyed. You see the doctrinal application? So God is putting the emphasis here on life because if you wanted life in the tribulation and you wanted to make it to God's uh, plan of redemption, you had to continue. If you drew back, if you gave up, if you went with the beast, if you take the mark, if you side with the Antichrist, God has no pleasure in you. That's the doctrine. We got that? That's doctrine. Now, spiritually, this is the life of faith that God expects. The justification by faith in Romans, the walk of faith in Galatians, and the life of faith that God has pleasure in. Whatsoever is is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And your life is supposed to be a life of faith full of faith. Jesus Christ saw faith and he marveled, right? So that's Habakkuk is the prophet of faith. Now go, to, go back to Habakkuk. Almost, almost tripped on that. Go back to Habakkuk. All right, say that three times fast. All right, don't really do it. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Looking at the notes, uh-oh. All right. And then here's where it gets to bite a little bit. Because Jehovah God tells Habakkuk that he's going to use the Chaldeans to bring this judgment upon Judah. And there's these five woes. Not like, woe, watch out, but like, woe, like destruction, judgment, bad stuff. And uh, this is going to be, this is going to hurt you. This is going to step on your toes. And if it does, I don't care. I mean, if you're watching at home and it steps on your toes, you could just turn it off. But here's the first woe. Verse 5. Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home. Too many guys spend time in the bar and not in their house. Um, who enlargeth his desire as hell, (laughs) the things you want when you're on that stuff is usually not Bible reading and prayer, Uh, uh, and is as deaf and cannot be satisfied, because you always want to do it again and get more, but gather unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, how long, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. The first woe is against drunkenness. He says this drunkenness makes you want the wrong things, do the wrong things, go to the wrong places, heap the wrong stuff up to yourself. You take that as it stands. I know you, like I said last week, I know you drink a little for your stomach's sake and you convince yourself that that fourth glass is just for your stomach, but God says, woe against drunkenness. For anybody that tells you that the Bible is ambivalent and ambiguous about that stuff, they're really just convincing themselves of a fairy tale. The Bible is pretty categorical 
All right, I know Jesus turned the water into wine. I know, but we can explain what that is and let the Bible define that all. But the Bible's pretty clear here. That stuff is not good for you, not good for your family, not good for your nation. It's just not good. And he says it right there. He pronounces a woe against the people that are so intoxicated. You know what the root word of intoxicated is, right? Toxic. You're putting poison in yourself to get a buzz as you kill brain cells, but intoxicated on that junk, all right? Uh, verse 9, second woe. Some of you are like, woe already, but woe. Verse 9, woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. God pronounces a woe against covetousness. He says in Colossians, covetousness is idolatry. And my goodness, people, the Christmas decorations are almost out at Hobby Lobby. And that's a whole culture of covetousness. And I, and I like the Christmas stuff too. I'm born on Christmas, like I said that. But we are a commercialism, debt-driven economy. We, are consume, we don't produce things anymore. America used to make railroads and do stuff that changed the world. Now we consume. We are a debt-driven economy that we have to spend more than we have to kind of keep the thing going, which is backwards. But that's what they say you have to do because everything's backwards. Economically, everything's backwards. And we are a nation of covetousness. Look at this. Look at that. I want a bigger one. Nobody's satisfied anymore. The Bible says, be content with such things as you have. For for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Jesus Christ is just not enough for most of us. Verse 12. Here's the third woe. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. God pronounces a woe against cruelty. God says, don't build things with blood. Don't build things with iniquity. Don't build things out of cruelty and harshness and viciousness. Don't be like Pharaoh being ruling over people with rigor and being a taskmaster. What did Jesus say? If you're going to be chief, you have to be a servant. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher leader at school. That and a nickel will not get you on the bus, but it used to. But anyway, I'm a teacher leader. You know what they teach us in teacher leader training? Servant leadership. The world knows that's the way a leader is supposed to be. But we're just stupid sometimes. Verse 15. Here it is again. I mean, come on, gang. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look on their nakedness. A woe against drunkenness, that's your own, and then a woe against serving booze to somebody else. Giving it to somebody else, showing somebody else. I don't know how else to say it. And I kind of want everybody to know where I stand on it. All right? I think you get where I stand on it. It's wrong. If you want to guzzle the devil's piss, you can do it all you want. But God's not smiling on it. And honestly, I love you, but I'd rather not be invited to the party. Because it's just uncomfortable for both of us. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, but when you see me not having it, you're going to feel weird. So it's just better off. Just, just don't send me the invite. It's just weird for both of us. But I mean, the Lord here is saying, if you give that stuff... And your little children, and let's bring it down to the family. You might do things in your home and your kids watch you pass it along. That's you giving it to somebody else. You may not be putting it to their lips, but they're seeing it and they're going to do it. And, and what you do in moderation, your children will always do in excess. So am I making my point clear enough? With love, and I'm not mad at anybody. I don't have anything going on in the background. I don't have any kind of x-ray vision about what you did on Saturday night. But the Bible's very plain. You know, for everybody that wants to give me, drink a little for your stomach's sake, I'll give you 50 verses that say something or the other. Categorical. Well, it says the deacon can have not given to much wine. If that's what your proof text is, man, I'll give you 50 canons that say the opposite. And if God gives you 50 candidates that say the opposite, if I stood up here and said how much I hate something, and then you think, well, maybe he doesn't really hate it. If I went on and on about how much I might hate broccoli, 
right? Which I don't hate broccoli like my pastor does. But, you know, if I went on about how I hated broccoli, and then you say, you know what, maybe I can have some broccoli in front of me. Maybe, maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe there's just not much broccoli. What? You know, God tells you verse after verse after verse, woe to the drunkard, woe to them that give drunk, and you're going to jump in and stick your foot in the door because God cracked a verse open that says, not given to much wine. And that's what you're going to exploit and say, look, look, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You're fooling yourself. Let God define things the way you want. I am not going to finish this message. Let God define things the way he wants to define them. That's the rule of Bible study. What does God say on a topic? Marriage, relationships, booze, anything. What is God? And let God be true and every man a liar. Right? How does God treat it? Well, that's the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. How does God feel about it? Do you remember what God said about sodomites in the Old Testament? Has he changed his attitude? You know what God said about sin in the Old Testament? Has he changed his attitude? You know what God said about parenting in the Old Testament? Has he changed his attitude? Yes, he doesn't whack every city now that might be given to certain sins, but that's because he's merciful, not because he's changed his feeling about things. All right? Verse 18 and 19 is, is another woe. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. There's a woe against idolatry. Right? I was an altar boy. And I walked past, they called it Altar Boy Alley in St. Clair's, and you walked behind the big stone thing, and it was the big thing of supposedly Jesus, and I've told the testimony before, I'd play with the nails in his feet. It was brick. It was mortar. It's just, it's an idol, right? And the Bible says an idol is nothing. So God pronounces a woe against idols. You could put a whole bunch of churches that have God's judgment pronounced against them, because they are bowing down to statues and kissing crosses and genuflecting at shrines and grottos, and God is so far from that. It's satanic. It's not just a different version of Christianity. It's satanic. Because Satan wants to create an ambiance. You know, you might be in a public school auditorium right now, so there's no ambiance. You didn't walk in here and think, you know, you know, just, you know, there's no stained glass windows, there's no steeple, there's no incense to put you in the religious mood. It's just uncomfortable chairs and a hard floor and some spotlights, which, you know, whatever those are, they just make me see spots. But you know what? There's no ambiance. You can have church in a field. You can have church in a cave. You can have church on a houseboat. You can have church on a patio outside your house like Maurice did or in a, in a cave like some of our brethren in Southeast Asia do or in the parks like our brethren in Mexico do. You're the church. There's no ambiance. You know, we, what a nice building they have. I'd like a nice building too. I'm not going to lie. But that's not what God is necessarily concerned with because that stuff can become an idol. We, have whole tr- we go on tours of buildings to see what the building looks like. Look at the building. You know, it's just... Watch that stuff. Somebody comes out, you know, dressed a certain way. How come they'll be like this from the pulpit? Peace be unto you. And outside, they're having a cigarette talking about the football game. Why do they talk differently outside of the pulpit than they do in the pulpit? That's like chicanery. That's like fraud. Why can't you talk as plain as a regular person up here? You put on the voice. Today, dearly beloved, we will talk about God. What? When I first few months when I went to first Bible church, I saw Pastor Dean screaming up there. I was like, I like this. You know? I was like, ooh, I feel, I feel like somebody ripping your hide off and telling you you're wicked. I kind of enjoyed that. It was good for my spirit. But somebody just like, you know, friends. That, that, that smile's plastered. I think like a crack if I flicked it with my fingers. It just doesn't seem real. You know, I need it to be real. Uh, idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Uh, some guy had a spray paint, that statue that you're kissing. You know, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Uh, now let's go to chapter 3. 
So in chapter 1, we saw Habakkuk's faith tried. Habakkuk 2, chapter 2 is Habakkuk's faith tested. Habakkuk 3 is Habakkuk's faith triumphant. And it's a beautiful description of the second coming of Christ. Let me just point out a few things here because I am going way too long on my little pet peeves here. 3, 4. Uh, 3, 4, we see um, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Silah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise and His brightness was as the light. There we see the brightness of His coming. That's described in 2 Thessalonians. Look at verses 6 and 7. Keep reading with me. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Look what it says in verse 7. The land of the Midian did tremble. We see the earthquake. The earth is shaking. Revelation 16 talks about the earth quaking in the tribulation before the Lord comes. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, the mountains saw thee and they trembled. We see the falling mountains. Revelation 6 talks about the rocks falling, mountains falling. Here the mountains are trembling and falling. Look at verse 11. The sun and moon stood still. We see even the heavenly bodies are being altered like they do in the tribulation, like they did for Joshua. When he said, son, stand now still. And God said, that battle is a picture of Jesus Christ, Joshua, who's going to come back and crush the enemies. You see the parallels. The sun stood still for Joshua, and the heavenly things start doing stuff when Jesus Christ comes back. Verse 12, thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. The heathen are threshed like the summer threshing floors. Read Daniel 2.35. He talks about how that stone is going to come. I said it last week. And thresh and just turn those nations into chaff. That's what's on the threshing room floor. Matthew 3 says the Lord is going to throughly purge his floor. He's going to thresh the heathen. John the Baptist preached it. There it's being fulfilled. Verse 13. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Watch it. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. There is Genesis 3.15 fulfilled when the head of the wicked, who is the Antichrist, is wounded. Right? He said, he's going to bruise your head, Satan. That doesn't just mean his forehead. That means his head. Like Jesus Christ is the head. Antichrist is the head for the devil. Right? Okay. Uh, Verse number 14. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses. Through the heap of great waters, when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips, uh, I lost something. When I heard, my, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. When Jesus Christ comes to destroy the wicked, we're coming with him. You see, 14, there's a whirlwind, second coming. See verse 15, there's a sea, probably a sea of blood that's being walked through with horses. You're riding horses when he comes back, right? And the blood is up to the horse's girdles when he comes back, correct? Verse 16, it's called a day of trouble, and it says that God is coming with his troops. That's you. His troops, his army. It's a war. And we win. And we're on the winning side. Verse 17. This is a beautiful point here in 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Please notice this chapter ends with a declaration of faith in the face of despair. Notice the fig tree's not blossoming. The vines aren't yielding their fruit. 
The olives are failing. The fields are yielding no meat. The flock's being cut off. But I'm still rejoicing in the Lord. Even though all looked bleak, Israel will be restored by Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, man, five minutes before the second advent, nobody but somebody reading the Bible is going to think Israel is ever going to be a nation again. They didn't think they were going to be a nation in 1947. They didn't think they'd be a nation. They are. And when they're surrounded and being persecuted and hunted by the Antichrist, who but somebody with a Bible and some faith would ever think that this little runt of a nation hiding in the mountains and fleeing for their lives is ever going to be the head of the nations again. And he says, even though the fig tree's not blossoming, I'm going to rejoice. Even though you're bringing the Chaldeans upon my people, God, even though you're going to whack Judah and do what you're going to do, I know one day you're going to restore us because you promised to restore us. He says, I still have faith. That's a declaration of faith when you don't have anything to go on. And brethren, faith, and this is hard for me too, faith believes God when you can't see any hope. Faith believes God when you cannot see any hope. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, that was a great picture, Habakkuk, the prophet of faith. Let me give you one other short picture, Habakkuk, the thinking prophet. Because he's a, a prophet of faith. He's struggling with his faith. He's reaching out in faith. But he's also a prophet who did some thinking. You know what? We do some thinking, don't we? we got these minds that think, that turn things over, that sometimes don't turn off. And here's what Habakkuk thought about a lot. He couldn't reconcile his belief in a good and righteous God with the facts of life as he saw them. He was troubled with an eternal why. Why? You see 112? Go back to 112. Look what he's saying here. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God? What does Psalm 90 say? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Micah 5, 2, right? His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The one from everlasting is God Almighty, not you and not Michael, the archangel. It's only God is from everlasting. And he's saying, Lord, art thou not from everlasting? O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. He's speaking about the Chaldeans. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. He's wrestling with it. He couldn't understand why God would use a wicked nation to punish Judah. These pagan idolaters, why are you going to bring them into your people and have them burn your temple? God, you're from everlasting. You're the mighty God. You've ordained them for correction. You're letting us take it from them. Ever seen the wicked prosper and wondered why? Amen. I mean, today, even people of faith like Habakkuk, he was a person of faith, don't we struggle with why? You don't have to say amen. I won't out you. But you struggle with why. Like he struggled with why. We wonder why. Why does God allow awful crimes to go unchecked? You don't wonder that? Why doesn't God stop the wicked if he's all-powerful? You've never been asked that question? Why do the wicked prosper? Man, all through the book of Psalms, Asaph is asking that question of God. Why are you chastened and feel like a lamb to the slaughter and the wicked have more than heart can wish, it seems? Come now. You've never wondered why. Again, don't answer out loud. But I told you, this book lives where we live. Why are you, you know, scraping to put two nickels together and this guy's dropping $100 bills like they're pennies? And you're doing the best you can. And you're struggling and you're trying. You're trying to live right and do right. And your family's going sideways and all this stuff is happening all around you. You never wondered why? Well, Habakkuk wondered why. You want to get out there and serve? You got health things, you got these things, all this stuff. You don't ever wonder why? God, I'm crying to you. Where are you, God? Why? Hey, Habakkuk is right on your doorstep. He was a man that wanted to serve God. He was a man with a commission from God, and he didn't understand, and he was honest enough to say, God, what's going on? Why is this happening? Here's another why. 
Why is God silent in the face of disaster? Lord, I'm on this boat. You told me to cross over to the other side, and you're asleep on a pile of fish. And these waves are licking up five, ten feet over the stern, and they're crashing down on us. And Master, carest thou not that we perish? Isn't this so real? There's a doctrine in the Bible we don't like to study. It's called the silence of God. And it doesn't always mean you're in sin. And it doesn't always mean you're not doing enough of what you'll be doing. You see, the tendency, and we learn this from Job, is to always think you're doing something wrong. Amen. Oh, what's going on? What are we doing wrong? What are we not doing enough of? And it's good if it drives you to more prayer, hallelujah. If it drives you to more Bible, hallelujah. That's good. But it just might be that God is just going to be asleep on the boat to see what you're made of. Peace be still. But he let them come to the end of themselves before that peace be still came, right? You'd like that peace be still to be the first time you felt this on the boat. You'd be like, hey, we like it when he says peace be still there. We don't like it when it's like, you know, sitting in the hospital. We don't like it when it's staring at the graveside. We don't like it when it's like, you know, trouble laying up at night. Like that's, and God sometimes takes you to the end of yourself. And he's quiet for a while. And then just when you think you're about to break, peace, be still. And then he looks over at you and says, wherefore didst thou doubt? Where is thy faith? (laughs) I mean, it's just, to us, it's like, man, Lord, if you were my friend, I'd slap you. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, sometimes like those thoughts, I'm not being irreverent, I'm just being honest. Like, sometimes it's like, where did we doubt? The waves are 15 feet over the boat. You told us to cross over. We're doing what you said to do. Why are you putting us through this? Why are you silent? Where are you, God? Wherefore didst thou doubt? Verse 13. Look what he says to him. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? He's saying, God... How can you let this happen to us? We're more righteous than the Chaldeans. We're more righteous. I'm more righteous than the Babylonians. How can you bring this into my life and into our lives? Habakkuk thought, all I want to say, I'm just trying to make the point, and I hope you get in this point, that he wrestled with the same questions we have today. Lord, you're holy. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to follow you. What is going on? Which brings us to our one big idea in the book of Habakkuk. Conclusion, but it's an important one. One big idea. Here it is. If you're going to live by faith, you have to believe God when you don't understand. Sounds so simple. But it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. You have to believe God when you don't understand. When the health goes south, when the family goes sideways, when the path gets dark, when the job lets you go, when the anxiety overwhelms, when, when, when you're trying to do the best you can and you just don't know what's going on, that's the moment to trust more. It's easy to trust when the prayer answers are coming like this. It's easy to trust when the kids are healthy and the money's in the bank and everything's smiling on you and the sun is shining. It's great, but that's not really faith. Faith is like some of these great missionaries like a Hudson Taylor or William Carey who went to China, who went to India and spent years without a convert and still continued. Or these guys that you'll never read about that had their families fed to hogs that still kept their testimony before God. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs or Martyr's Mirror or the Trail of Blood. There is a slew of unnamed people, right, that you'll never met. People in North Korea, people in China, people in North Africa, people in parts of Mexico, people in parts of Eastern Europe, people all over the world that you've never met that had to hide Bibles, sneak around, be wise, 
do all these things. I sent a video the other day of Pakistan, a place in Pakistan, where they are busting the crosses off the churches and cheering as they fall to the ground. And you don't think some of those brethren are huddled around going, Lord, what are we going to do? And faith is believing God when you don't understand. Right? They take your babies and they fed them to hogs. That's what they did under the Inquisition. Right? That's what they did. Or took them and put them, took your babies and sent them off to the convent and said, they're going to be nuns. They'll never know your Jesus ever. Well, we know Christians in the Philippines that had their children kidnapped by Muslims. Today, they're existing and alive. And they still kept serving God. You know what that is? F-A-I-T-H. If your faith is only as weak as when everything is good, you trust God, that's a weak faith. I think that's what Jesus exposes in all of us when he lets the boat rock. (laughs) He lets the boat rock, and he says, Wherefore didst thou doubt? Where is thy faith? That's a very important question. Where is thy faith? Meaning, faith is what you're leaning on. And if you're leaning on your own understanding as the source of your faith, well, that's easy to fail. But if your faith is in him, then that never fails. My, though, isn't it an exercise to stretch out and lean on that when it's dark, right? Hard to see when it's dark in your room, isn't it? But that's when you have to lean out and touch and trust. Like many of us, Habakkuk wanted to understand everything, but God showed him this could not be. Instead, go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. I got two passages left, two stops. Deuteronomy, then Habakkuk, then we'll be done. See, instead, this is why this book is a blessing. Instead of getting all the answers now, Habakkuk learned the lesson that you don't get all the answers in this life. You know, I'm not going to say this to be smug, but God doesn't have to answer you. God, his answer might just be, son, trust me. I'm working out something bigger than your little pea brain can fathom. And in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's a great verse. It says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. When Habakkuk learned, that's a lesson that is hard to learn. But God knows everything. God knows what's around the corner. God knows where you've been. God knows where you're going. The secret things, the things you don't understand, the things you can't see, They're plain as day to God. They belong to Him. And in His time, He may reveal them. It says those things which are revealed, right, belong unto us. But God's got to reveal them to us. And He reveals things to us by by His Spirit, through His Word, but the circumstances of life sometimes can stay awfully foggy. And God is not under an obligation to say, i got to explain everything to you. We had our nephew over today. Right, Stephen? This is a funny illustration. But uh, little Nico, who comes on Sundays a lot with his dad, Joe, uh, and his sister, Mia, uh, he's at that stage now, and it's cute. It wasn't, it wasn't anything but cute. Nico, let's go inside. Why? <laughs> Nico, let's go outside. Why? It was, it, was, it, was, it was why, right? We always ask God why. But sometimes it's just because I said so, and you just got to trust me. I can't tell you all the why right now. It's, you're not ready for it. And um, you know what the world says? The world says, seeing is believing. I need to see the why, God. I need to see, I need to see how this thing plays out before I commit. Amen? If you knew the paths your Christian life would take before you got saved, probably none of you would have gotten saved. If you knew the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs and the hills and the valleys that God would have to bring you through to mold you and conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, you might think twice before you signed on that dotted line. God said, I can't show you all the why now. I'll show you the why in the hereafter. But I can't show you all the why now. The world says seeing is believing. Hey, God, show me and I'll trust you. Faith replies, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Remember what Habakkuk's name meant? To cling to. 
Go back to Habakkuk. Or to embrace. And here's where we circle the wagons and land the plane. And here's where it really makes the biggest point for all of us. His name means to cling. His name means to embrace. In the mystery that he was facing, Habakkuk went to God and waited for an answer. 2-1 says there, 2-1, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am approved. He went on to that watchtower and he listened to the Lord. He clung to him. He embraced him. The confusion and the lack of understanding did not cause him to draw back. It caused him to get closer. Habakkuk means embrace because when you're going through a time that you don't understand, like Habakkuk, and you're wondering why, like Habakkuk, remember Habakkuk's name. Cleave, embrace, draw nigh, cling to. Because just like Habakkuk, when you're going through those moments of why and what's going on, God, that's when you got to be like Habakkuk. Cling to God. Get to that high place. Get to that tower. Find that place where you can draw nigh to God and just wait for his answer. Habakkuk did. That's what his name meant. And that's the biggest lesson we could take away from this. That when we don't understand, is now when we close the Bible, now when we just try to sort it out ourselves, now when we turn to the old resources or the old ways, that's when we must draw nigh. That's how you build your faith. You go to the gym or you go to your home gym. You know what? That weight gets put in your hands. It's that struggle to lift it when your body doesn't want to lift it. I'm doing some isometrics, Christian, all right? I'm going to work some isometrics, all right? It's that, it's that struggle and that pain and those fibers getting torn. Why? So they can be built back stronger. That's how muscle is built. Something is destroyed and torn up, and your body is like in pain because your body's going, what are you doing? I want to eat ding-dongs and sit on the couch. And you are hurting it and stretching it and reaching forth and pressing for something that your body doesn't want to do, but in that tearing, in that pain, you're built back stronger. I was going to say built back better, but that's got a negative connotation. Because <laughs> that was not better. And in Habakkuk 1.3, I'm not going to read it again, but somebody said this, and it was a good line I, I, I took. When Habakkuk looked at his circumstances, he was perplexed. When all he did was lean on his own understanding and look what was going on around him, he just said, why, God, what is going on? But if you go to the last verse of the, the book, when Habakkuk looked to the Lord, he sang. When he looked to himself and his circumstances, he struggled. When he looked to the Lord, he sang. Right? The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. You know what he's saying? You ever seen those animals, those, those mountain creatures? They can navigate that rocky terrain and walk in things and through things that it just seems impossible. God says, I can make your feet like that. You got to look to me. Now we sit here, hyped up, blessed, um, you know, amen, amen. But when you go home, and the worries come upon you, or you wake up tomorrow, and the worries come upon you, remember this. And when they come upon me, remind me what I said to you. And let's remind each other that if we could just keep looking to the Lord, we'll end up with a song. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning, and God gives me songs in the night, the Bible says. If you're really going to walk by faith, you have to trust God where you cannot trace him. Like Habakkuk, cling to the Lord in our times of difficulty and distress. That is faith. Three quotes. Watchman Nee. Faith looks not at what happens to him, but at him whom he believes. Uh, John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. Faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful dispensation 
is under the direction of his Lord. That chastisements are a token of love, of his love. That the season, measure, and continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good. And that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his need. And finally, uh, Oswald Chambers said, Faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. So if you're going to live by faith, you have to believe God even when you don't understand. Let's pray. Lord.